0: To the band. Let's show them some love. So, Lent started on Wednesday, and today is the first Sunday of Lent. So, let me just give you a little background on Lent. Some of us know something about it, probably not a lot. Some of us are like, no, I have no idea what that means. Why are we talking about Lent, the thing I get in my pocket? So first, the name comes from this old Anglo-Saxon word, which is lengthen, lengthen, which just means uh, lengthen or lengthening. And it's the word that the old Anglo-Saxons would use for the springtime, uh, because it was the time when the days were starting to lengthen and stretch out. And actually, before it was known as Lent, it was known mainly by its Latin name, which is the Quadragesima, the Quadragesima. That's maybe too intimidating for folks. That's why they switched it. Uh, and the quadrigesima, it just means the 40 days, the 40 days. And these are the 40 days that are leading up to Easter. And it's a little tricky because it's actually 46 days from Ash Wednesday, which starts the season, until Easter Sunday. But the thing is that Sundays, and there's six of them, don't get counted because they're actually traditionally a time to actually break from your fasting. um, You kind of celebrate mini Easters. They kind of give us a hope. They're like cheat days um, when you're on a diet, right? They help you get through, get you back on course. Because let's face it, 40 days is a long time to give up something that you're used to or something that you love or enjoy. I know it's really hard for me to make it that long. So the 40 days of fasting comes from a story that we're going to look at today. And there's these traditional sets of scriptures that we read during this season. And it's modeled off one particular event in the life of Jesus. And uh, a note on fasting in general, because some people are like, yeah, fasting is very important for my spiritual life. Other people are like, no, fasting, why would you ever do that? Um, Fasting, the point of it isn't to just give something up just to give something up. It's not the goal. You don't fast too fast. You fast for something else. It's a means to an end. Um, It's a tool that we can use. And it's helpful for some of us, not helpful for others of us. But the end, the goal of all spiritual practices and tools is always going to be more awareness of God in our lives and more awareness of God in the world around us and more awareness of God in the lives of others. We're attentive to others as we're fasting. And and when we're opening up to God, we have a name for this. We call it the kingdom of God or the kingdom of God, or we call it the beloved community, or we simply call it like being made whole, being made whole. But the thing is with this, like we're never fully there, are we? Like some days there's just a lot more brokenness and hurt than there is this sense of wholeness. And some days there's like much more hate and disconnection and anger within us than love and welcome. And some days there's more the kingdom of ourselves, the kingdoms of this world than there is the kingdom of God. And it's actually between these two realities, right these experiences of being in pieces and this experience of being put together that we find ourselves and I believe, that this is actually the place where we find the Spirit as well, who's guiding and leading us between life and death. So I want to invite David up to read for us this morning this story. And as he's coming up, I'd invite everybody to just stand as you are able, out of a sign of respect for this ancient word of God that comes to us. And then we'll we'll think through the meaning of this story for us.
1: Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Thus, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. And then the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered back, It's written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And therefore, the devil took him to the holy city, and he placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, "Okay, if you are the son of God, then throw yourself down, for it is written... (laughs) He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, well, again, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to a test. So, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give to you, if you will just fall down and worship me. But Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And the devil left him for a while, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. Word of God for all the people of God.
0: Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, David. So let's look closely at this story. We have Jesus being led into the wilderness, into the desert, into this desolate place, and uh, it, we really get the sense he's pulled out here into this environment, uh, and he's there in order to be tempted and tested, to go without food and without shelter, without human connection, and, and all of this is coming on the heels of another important event in the life of Jesus. I think we have to keep these together. It comes right after Jesus' baptism. And the baptism is this beautiful, holy moment where the Spirit of God descends like this wild bird over Jesus, and the, the divine voice of God speaks and says, this is my son, this is the beloved, the one that I love and with whom I am well-pleased. So that comes right before this. They really contrast these two stories. And when we put them together, baptism and wilderness, it's like God is saying this. And I think this really captures a lot of life. God is saying, I love you. I love you. You are the beloved of God. And it's not gonna be easy. It's gonna be hard. Life's gonna be hard. And that's okay, because remember, I love you. I love you. You are mine. You are my beloved, and you're going to have to trust me in this life and in this movement. And the Spirit is there in both the stories, in the baptism and in the wilderness. The Spirit's the connecting point. The Spirit is connecting like where we've been and who we've been to where God is calling us and pulling us and drawing us. To where God wants us to be. The Spirit is the one that is moving us throughout life. And so I think we often think that the spiritual life, um, that the way of Jesus is just one choice out of so many that, that we get to pick these days. We have this diverse sort of religious marketplace. We have this pluralistic world. There's all these different religions. Like We can just pick the one that fits right for us. Um, And uh, we just happen to choose Christianity, right? We happen to choose the way of Jesus. Um, But the thing is, the story that we're hearing would be told different if that were really the case, right? It wouldn't be the Spirit leading and pulling Jesus out into the wilderness. It would be Jesus making the decision, I'm going to take this next step in, in the spiritual journey. I'm sort of the author of my spiritual story. That doesn't seem to be how it works though. Jesus is led and pulled and that's an important part of the spiritual life. It's something that calls us and something that moves us. It stirs us at the deepest places of who we are. It's not something we choose as if we're in control of it. And here's the truth, this is why. You're like, well, no, I kinda think that's the case. The truth is, we would not choose this way. Like, you don't pick the way of Jesus because the reality is it's not very cool. It's not sexy. It's not easy. Like, those are all things that we would want to pick and purchase and, like, have for ourselves, right? The way of Jesus is kind of an anti product, it's kind of the thing uh, you don't want to buy because once you enter into it after the baptism, you get to go into places like the wilderness. You have to go into emptiness. You have to go into loneliness. It takes you ultimately to the cross. It, it leads you to death and to dying to things. And like, we wouldn't choose this. We don't pick this. Like, we're called to it. We're pulled into it by the Spirit. I think that's what happens. We actually run away from it inherently but the Spirit does other things with us. There's this like famous hymn, I think it's the most famous hymn in the world, Amazing Grace, right? And it says, um, and we probably all know it, I'm not gonna sing it because I have a horrible voice. I once was lost, right? But now I'm found, and I was blind, but now I see. I think it actually needs another line though. It needs to say, I was lost, and then found, and then I got invited by Jesus to die, Jesus says, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for the sake of mine will find it. Life and death are held together by the spirit that is between them. And that's what we find in the way of Jesus. It's not all just life and beauty. There's also death and we have to embrace that and sit with it. So back to the story We're out in the desert, and Jesus is doing all the fasting. He's doing the spiritual practices. He's doing all the right things. And what happens at the end of it? It's not a mountaintop experience where Jesus is like, I'm so full because I've been doing all this prayer. No, the the tempter shows up. The devil shows up with Jesus to give him these three temptations. It's not the mountaintop experience that comes at the end of the spiritual life. It's most often actually the desert and the most difficult moments. When you're doing your spiritual life well, it might actually be much more difficult for you. Mother Teresa, one of our great saints in the modern era said this, if I am am to be called a saint, surely it will be a saint of darkness. And the reason is she poured her life into the Spirit of God and serving the least of these. And what she got out of that was the silence of God that laid heavy over her for most of her life. Christianity, faith, following Jesus isn't what you get out of it. It's a path that you are called onto, that you are pulled into. So it's at this moment, at the end of all this, that the tempter comes to Jesus and tells him this. He says, if you are really, if you are really the son of God, then take these stones right here and then turn them into bread because I know that you're hungry. So the question that he's asking is, who are you? Who are you? From from where or from whom does your identity come, Jesus? And the devil is saying here, you have to prove yourself, Jesus. Jesus. Your identity comes from your power, from you taking these stones and making them into loaves. And really that's saying like your identity is something that you can build through your actions. It's self-constructed. Like show it to me, Jesus. And I think this is a lie that we are so often tempted to believe that we build our own identity, that we make ourselves But the thing is, if you spend all of your life and time trying to make yourself, you're going to end up insecure because you're not rooted in anything outside of yourself. And you'll never really know who you are because your identity is something that you could never really build. Your identity as a human being, it's a gift that's given to you. And so Jesus isn't the son of God because of the miracles that he does, right? No, or his wonderful teaching. Jesus has great teaching. It's not that, it's because the spirit of God is upon Jesus. He is the beloved of God, regardless of what he does. Just as we are the beloved of God, regardless of what we do, that is how grace works. You are the beloved of God, not because of anything you do, but because God loves you. You are God's. We have Jesus. Jesus doesn't mess up, and Jesus is God's. We're going to mess up a bunch. I know I've messed up plenty this week, but I'm still God's, and you are still God's. That is your identity, and the devil's a liar. The devil is a liar who's going to try and convince you otherwise. Are you really gods? That's the question that the devil is asking. And so Jesus knows this. How does Jesus know? How do we know this truth about us? Is it just because I came up here and said it? No. Jesus knows this because he knows his story, right? He quotes the sacred scriptures. He says, don't you know that it's written that humans don't live by bread alone? but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, and Jesus knows what God says. God says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And what God says is that, I knit you together in your mother's womb by love itself. And God says, you are my son you're my daughter. And so scripture reminds us of who we are and who we were created to be and the one who created us. That's why scripture matters. It's our source of identity. That's why we need to be rooted in our ancient scriptures and texts. It's why we put it at the center of worship. The reading of scripture is the central event of our worship together. So the devil This liar takes another angle, right, in the story and tries to twist the story. It's like, okay, you're going to quote the story. I'm going to twist it a little bit, but I'm just going to give you a piece of the story. I'm going to take some things out of context. So Jesus gets taken to the highest point in the temple, and and the devil says, if you're really gods, then throw yourself down, and the angels are going to catch you. That's what it says in the scriptures. But Jesus is like, hey, devil you're a liar. That's only part of the story. We can actually lie by telling the truth, telling half of the truth, right? That's only part of the story. Don't you know that wisdom says don't put God to the test? This thing that, that the devil does of telling half the story, it happens so often. Like We take part of the story and we make it the whole. Like We read part of scripture and we try to make that everything. But here's the deal. Scripture is complex and it's multi layered and it speaks in different voices. There's points where it argues with itself and it speaks in different ways for different moments in life. The thing is, if you want to have a cult, you make Scripture say one singular thing instead of allowing it to speak in its plurality and wisdom. Like with with scripture, it's not that we have one word of God, we have the words of God. Jesus is the word, but scripture is the words of God, and they are many, and they are diverse, and we need to plunge into all of them, And, and God is speaking in all of these different ways, and Jesus knows this. That's why he can add another part to the story, and he knows that God's story isn't limited to one Way one exclusive way, but God's story is open-ended and it's inclusive and it welcomes everyone into it to find your place within it. And we're all going to find different places within the story and that's okay. And we're trying to be a community that holds space for that here. So the devil then switches strategies at this point. He's hoping that the third time is going to be the charm. He he takes Jesus up on this mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their splendor. And this is what this liar says. The liar says, I'll give you, you all of these, you know, all the kingdoms of the world, if you just fall down and worship me. And Jesus looks at the devil and he says, away, 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 stay away. Why? Why does he say this? Because Jesus doesn't want the kingdoms of the world because his eyes are set on a different kingdom, which is the kingdom of God. That's not about controlling the world, but it's about transforming it and making it different and more beautiful and more connected. I want to, as we're coming to the end, I want to give you this quote by Alan Lewis. Alan Lewis is this theologian, uh, and and he wrote this book uh, called Between Cross and Resurrection. And he was actually himself writing in the wilderness, Uh, He died before he was able to complete the whole book because he was living with cancer. And this is how he describes the kingdom of God. He says this In God's kingdom, there is a justice which sets free and makes joyful all who stand before it. The guilty are not condemned, the fallen are picked up, nobodies are promoted, the hungry are filled and the lost are not permitted to remain abandoned and all of this through a love through a love which knows no sensible bounds and breaks every principle of decorum and prudence and tradition that is a beautiful picture of what god is doing this is the kingdom that jesus wants jesus doesn't want the kingdoms of the world he wants this unkingdom that's far from from the power and politics that the world tries to offer. And the way to this kingdom is through worship and service. And that's much different than political strategy and votes. You can't buy, you can't bomb your way into the kingdom of God. Jesus says, Jesus says, "'Don't you know that it is written, "'Worship the Lord your God and serve him only.'" Without a life of worship and spiritual direction, we're going to spend all our time seeking after kingdoms that crumble and fall and we'll be left empty at the end of things. But there's another kingdom. There's this other kingdom, the kingdom of God. So my hope and prayer is that we may worship and serve God, knowing who we are, the beloved the one loved by God and pulled by this spirit through life and through death toward a kingdom that breaks all rules and stretches out into the world without end. That's our hope and where we're moving. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this ancient wisdom. There's so many temptations in life. Life can be so difficult and hard. And you show us another way, rooted in our true identity as your beloved children. We love you. Teach us to love you more and more and teach us to desire not the kingdoms and things of this world, but your kingdom where all are welcomed and included and loved. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.